You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, We are in the middle of a sermon series here at Midtown called Radical Faith. We're looking at the stories of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis together. Uh, and learning from those stories about faith, what it means to really have faith, and then who God is in the middle of our lives, how God works in our stories in often unexpected ways. And we're actually diving into one of my favorite narratives from this book of Genesis, so I'm just hyped to to share it with you guys. Uh, I kind of just want to dive right in. So if you have a Bible with you, turn in it to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, We're going to have the words up on the screen for you as well. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15 is where we're going to be this morning. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where's your wife Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You might not have noticed it, right at the start of this passage, we as the audience, the reader, are given some insider information. It's actually information that the characters don't know right away. It's subtle. In verse 1, It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. The narrator is telling us what's going to happen. And the word Lord there is literally the word Yahweh, which is the personal God of Israel, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, and the one who is bringing blessing to the world through Abraham. So we're told that that God is going to show up in this story. But when Abraham and Sarah start here, all they see are three men approaching them. They don't know this is a divine encounter right off the bat. And so the narrator is giving us a really interesting way of building tension or suspense right at the start of this, because we as the audience are aware that God's going to show up, and we're waiting with bated breath on where that's going to be. We're anticipating God's arrival somewhere in this story. This is a great storytelling method. Alfred Hitchcock, the famous film director, if you guys are are fans of uh, classic films, Alfred Hitchcock talked about this principle in his movies. He called it the bomb under the table principle. The idea is this. Imagine two people sitting at a table together, having a normal, mundane conversation, right? 
talking about things that probably, if you're watching in a movie, are boring. But then imagine the camera slowly pans underneath the table and shows you that there's a bomb ticking away right in the midst of this mundane conversation. Once you get back to that conversation, the words take on an entirely different context because you are aware something is going on that the characters don't realize, right? And you immediately start asking yourself, when's the bomb gonna go off, right? Are these characters gonna make it out? Who put the bomb there? All of these questions come up and it builds suspense and tension as you await what might happen in the story. That's what the narrator is doing here. We as the audience are being held in suspense right off the bat. We're being told God is gonna show up, so keep an eye out for where that might be. Keep an eye out for what God's doing. And I think that's an important reminder for us today to remember that God is often working under the table in our lives. He's often working in ways that we don't see, right? Sometimes it takes us years to realize that God has been working in our lives. We always want to remember to keep our eyes open, to remember that there's a bomb under the table and that any moment God could break in with life and grace and love. We have to be willing to see all of our mundane and tedious conversations with that in light. And in the middle of that suspense, we learn also a couple things about what this life of faith looks like from Abraham and Sarah here. We learn two main things, particularly about the issue of trust. We learn in verses 2 through 8 uh, the importance of trusting the way of God, and then in verses 9 through 15, the importance of trusting the word of God. You'll see that played out here, and I want to look at each of those in turn today. So first, in verses 2 through 8, trusting the way of God. How do they do that in this passage? Abraham shows his trust in the way of God by how he greets these people. You might have seen he greets them with overwhelming hospitality and generosity here. In verses 2 and 3, he bows down to them, which would have been a normal greeting in the ancient Near East, and then he refers to one of them as Lord, uh, which, by the way, is a different word than the word used in verse 1. So he still doesn't realize this is a divine encounter. He functionally is telling this person, uh, sir, right? Welcome, sir. Uh, can I serve you? Can I meet you and greet you and, and serve you in this, in this day? And then he offers them food and water in verse 4. Keeps them nourished, right? It said earlier that Abraham was sitting in the heat of the day. So he's probably kicking back, chilling in the shade after doing some work. And he immediately jumps from that relaxing position to greet them, to serve them. And then he keeps going above and beyond. It says he prepares three measures of flour, which would have made way more bread than five people could have eaten. That was a, a large quantity of bread. He's going above and beyond the amount that most people would eat. And then he prepares a calf here. And that doesn't often strike us. We're used to eating meat often, right? But in the ancient Near East, meat was kind of a delicacy. It wasn't something that you had with every meal. So he's going above and beyond to prepare this. And that would take hours to do, right? Abraham is choosing to interrupt whatever other plans he had going that day in order to serve these strangers, these randos who show up at his doorstep. Right? And he does that in the middle of like a random Tuesday. This isn't like a special occasion he's preparing for. He's being interrupted in the middle of his workday, and he's saying, whatever else I had planned, what's way more important in this moment is serving the people who are right in front of me, is meeting them and greeting them with generosity and hospitality. That surpasses whatever else I had planned the rest of today. And that's a major risk for him. Because back in his day, war and conquest were commonplace amongst the ancient world. Famine and drought often forced people out into the wilderness to wander around. And then those people would become vulnerable to robbery and theft. It was a hostile world to live in. And he realizes that. He lives in that world. And so for him to be hospitable like this, it means he's choosing a different way. He's choosing not to be suspicious of the stranger, even though they could be a threat to him. He's choosing to say, no, I'm willing to trust you, and I'm willing to take a risk 
to trust you and serve you. Because that's the only way that this sort of suspicious, uh, war-riddled world will get fixed. To this point in the Genesis narrative, all the way up to chapter 18, we're being reminded how broken the world is. There's story after story about how humans have failed to live up to their vocations, how they failed to love their neighbor, to love God, and to love the world. That's the world that Abraham is inhabiting, and he's choosing to say, in the middle of that world, I'm going to serve. In the middle of that world, where everyone is trying to get uh, as much as they can for themselves, I'm going to choose to give myself away. In the little, mundane thing, generosity breaks the brokenness of the world. And I think that's an important reminder for us because we've got a lot of big problems like Abraham did. I just mentioned Afghanistan earlier, right? A big problem that seems way too big for us to fix in our day-to-day lives. I was talking with a friend earlier. It seems like we're inundated by this all the time. Our screens fill with all of the big problems in our world. And it can sometimes feel like, what can I do, right? What do my actions really matter in the grand scheme of things? And we're being reminded right here that in the middle of a random Tuesday, in the middle of having your work interrupted, God is bringing his blessing. God is at work here in the little parts of our lives. And so what we're learning is that well, you don't have to solve all the big problems right away. God uses all of our lives well, as part of this blessing for the world. He uses everything we do. He's working under the table all the time. And the faithful hospitality that Abraham shows here, it's right in line with God's character as we see it throughout the rest of the scriptures. God shows hospitality and generosity and tells his people to do the same all the time, to strangers, to randos that show up in front of them. In Exodus and Leviticus, for instance, we are reminded of this character of God and what he calls us to do. Uh, The nation of Israel, if you remember the narrative, has uh, kind of come from Abraham, this family line. This nation of Israel has been enslaved in Egypt, and God has rescued them. God has heard their cries of oppression. He's cared for them. He's shown them immense generosity and hospitality, and he's freed them. And after that, he reminds them of the importance of living in the way that he's designed us to live. He says, hey, I freed you from this evil thing, and now I freed you into a different sort of life. And the the nation of Israel is supposed to be built around that sort of life. And that life involves caring for the stranger. God actually says to them that because you were once strangers in Egypt, you should know this better than anybody, that the generosity and hospitality I have is for everyone, independent of whether they're strangers or not. This is actually a a quote here from Leviticus 19. This is stated in Exodus as well. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God makes it quite clear that loving the stranger is an essential part of living in the way that he's designed us to live. Meeting the stranger wherever they are in front of us is crucial in the character of God. And Jesus echoes the same thing. Matthew 25, he gives us a story and he says that when we feed the hungry, when we give drink to the thirsty, when we welcome the stranger, when we care for the sick and visit those in prison, we aren't just caring for them. We're caring for the person of Jesus himself. Jesus equates himself with those who are most hurting those who are most impoverished, those who are most in need in our world. Jesus sees himself in the stranger, and he calls us to do the same, to see every person we interact with as the image bearer of God, as one just like us, 
meant uh, to be served and loved, meant to be welcomed. And so when Abraham shows this sort of welcome here, he's choosing to trust that the way of God, the way of hospitality and generosity, it can break all of the brokenness in the world around him. Violence characterizes his whole world and our whole world, and hospitality and generosity is the way through that. The stranger in need is a mirror to us. When we hold the stranger up in front of us, we see ourselves. And we realize that because we know everything we have has been given to us by God. There's nothing we have that's our possession. The breath in our lungs is from God, that we did nothing to earn that breath. The word for the Spirit of God all throughout the scriptures, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, that's ruach in Hebrew, it's pneuma in Greek, it all means breath or wind or spirit. That The Spirit of God is quite literally the inhabiting life force in all things. We have nothing without that spirit. And so we're reminded here that we're not deserving of anything on our own right, on our own warrant. And neither is any stranger. We're simply called to give ourselves away, to meet them in their needs. And we live in a world that tells us something different. We live in a world that tells us that the stranger in need is where they are because they made choices to get there. So the homeless person or the refugee or the immigrants, those people made choices or they were in unfortunate circumstances, but those things have led to where they are, right? And I've made choices to get where I am, right? I've made good choices that have gotten me wealth or comfort or the like. That's what our world says. You, your choices lead to your consequences, your conclusions. But God tends to flip that reasoning on its head or at least tells us that that reasoning is not what motivates us giving ourselves away. We don't meet people because of something that they've deserved. We meet people because the grace of God meets everyone. And so followers of God are people who get to flip the world's paradigm on its head. We're people who as a church, as a body, get to inhabit a different mode of living. A mode of living that says the stranger is no longer a stranger. They are welcome. And that I can be hospitable with every person I interact with. And Abraham's treatment of these strangers, that's a trust in the way of God. That's what we see in verses 2 through 8 here. But it doesn't just stop with trusting in the way of God, the way that God has designed us to live. It continues to trusting in the word of God in the rest of this passage here. Notice in verse 9, everyone's eaten their meals, everyone's had their food together, and we're still waiting for the bomb to go off, right? We were told in verse 1 that God's going to show up, but nothing's happened yet. God hasn't made himself clear, at least not to Abraham and Sarah yet. And then something starts to happen. These men ask a question. Where's your wife, Sarah? It's a weird question, right? In the context of this story, that's a really odd question, both for us who know that God's going to show up and for Abraham who's not sure if God's even in this or not. See, for Abraham, these are strangers, right? So how did they know his wife's name? It's a curious detail, right? How did these strange men who showed up know the name of his wife? And even if they did, why are they asking? That's a little private. In the ancient Near East, that's not something that people did. They didn't pry into your personal life very much. And then for us, we know this is God, right? We know, or at least these are representatives from God. Throughout church history, there's been a few conclusions on how this encounter is divine. Some people call the three men uh, parts of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some people call them angels or messengers. It's not entirely clear from the text. All we know is that it's divine encounter, right? But even when we know that, why is God asking where Sarah is? 
God knows, surely, right? God knows where Sarah is. He's not inquiring where a part of his creation is. He knows. This question is intended to draw us to a point. It's intended to draw us to the relationship between Sarah and Abraham. God is reminding Abraham here of his wife and the importance of the promise that came just a couple chapters before this. And then God really shows up. The bomb goes off. God says, your wife, Sarah, will have a son. This 90-year-old woman, this old lady, is going to give birth to a child. This is a reiteration of the promise that just came a couple chapters earlier as well. And so now Abraham fully realizes. He's like, these strange men who showed up, they know my wife's name, and now they're reiterating a promise that I already heard from God. This is clearly divine. Something crazy is going on here. And I love Sarah's response to this. She laughs, right? What a human response to laugh at the absurdity, at the overwhelming grace of God's blessing. This is actually just what her husband did earlier. And I think inquiring why Sarah laughs is an important thing for us, right? What's going on that makes her laugh at this blessing? You guys, Sarah in this story and Abraham earlier, they laugh because they know the world that they live in. They're dry and wrinkled faces that are worn by decades in the sun and marked by eyes that have seen brokenness and pain and sorrow for years. They know how the world works. They know that children don't come from 90-year-old women. They know that once you're past menopause, that doesn't happen, right? They know how crazy this claim is. And they know that they can only expect in the future what they've already experienced in the past. That's how the world works. But there's a punchline here. In the middle of that tragedy, there's an unexpected and inconceivable and utterly laughable punchline from God. And that punchline is that life is going to spring up in the middle of a place where only death rules. Life is going to come in a barren womb, in the place that no one thought was possible. The punchline is that a child is going to be born to this couple. The punchline is that any time the grace of God might just show up and might shatter the veneer of death in our lives and might actually spark the rulership of life instead. That might happen. A bomb of God's grace might just go off. And that's beyond their ability to comprehend. It's beyond a a frame of reference that they have. It's beyond what they would think or conceive of as possible here. And so all they can do is laugh. And it makes complete sense. The fundamental principle of comedy, of comedy movies and jokes, is that the punchline is unexpected. That's why we laugh. We laugh at jokes because the punchline gives us something that we weren't anticipating, that we didn't think was possible. It gives us a conclusion that's radically different than what we thought could happen. And so it catches us off guard, and that's what God is doing here. His grace is the surprise. It's the punchline here. It shows up to blow up our expectations of death and decay and destruction, and it gives us a different reality, a different way of seeing and living, a way of redemption and restoration in the world. There's a guy named Frederick Buechner who writes about this in his book, Telling the Truth. He says this, the comedy of grace as what needn't happen and can't possibly happen because it can only impossibly happen in the dark that only just barely fails to swallow it up. God's grace arrives as the unexpected comedy in the middle of a tragedy. 
and makes us laugh in the midst of pain and decay. And it opens up possibilities that we didn't think could exist. And I want to make an important note at this point. There's a tendency in a lot of Christian subculture to say, oh, the grace of God has arrived in my life, so pain and hardship are gone, right? I live a positive and encouraging life, super easy the rest of my days. That's disingenuous, and that's also not true to the story. Sarah and Abraham continue to go through hardship the rest of the time. So God's grace doesn't arrive here to eliminate pain and hardship. It doesn't get rid of those things. It arrives in the middle of those things. And so we're learning here that trusting in the word of God means we get a new mode of being, a new way of living in the middle of whatever we encounter. That's a way of living that trusts that God can, if he wants to, change our circumstances, but also not necessarily a guarantee that he will, but instead a guarantee that he will arrive no matter what happens, that he will be in our lives, that his grace and love will characterize the rest of our days. Trusting in God's word means believing what he said that he came to give abundant life, overwhelming refreshment, regardless of the death and decay that might surround us, right? And sometimes going right through that death and decay and bringing something new that we didn't expect. Our stories aren't ruled by barrenness when we trust in the word of God. Death no longer has the final word for us. Life does. There's a, a woman, I was reading her story this week, and it's quite powerful. I wanted to share it with you guys. Her name's Johnny Erickson. She was born in the mid-20th century and uh, to two Olympians, two Olympian parents. Uh, so she grew up quite athletic, as you could assume. She was a swimmer. She was a diver. And at age 18, in 1967, Johnny was uh, at the Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast. She was doing some diving. And one of her dives, she misjudged. Uh, the depth was more shallow than she expected, and her head hit the bottom. She fractured two vertebrae in her neck and she was paralyzed. She's been a quadriplegic since then. And after that happened, during her rehab, she was overtaken by depression, overtaken by anxiety, overtaken by suicidal thoughts, because what was the point of life, right? Only pain and death could be seen. And even uh, rigorous rehab really couldn't get her back to the place that she was before the dive. And in the middle of that space, she had some friends around her who had a lot of good conversations and encouraged her. And from those conversations, there was a question that kept coming up in her mind. The question went something like this. Can God bring life in the middle of a situation that looks and feels like death? Can God bring life in the middle of a situation that looks and feels like death? Not will God do it in the way that I expect, but can God do it at all? Even if it's in a way that I don't anticipate or expect. And slowly, that question kept working on her. And eventually, well, she started to get a little bit better. She learned how to paint. She couldn't use her arms, so she used her mouth. She put the paintbrush in her mouth and would paint on the canvas. And she'd sell some of those paintings. And then she also learned how to write with her mouth. And since that injury, Johnny Erickson has written over 40 books that have been translated into 33 different languages. And she is a global advocate for folks who are physically disabled in a circumstance where it seemed that only death and pain could win, that death and pain had already won by taking away her life, Johnny chose to trust the word of God, which says that it brings life to all people and in all things, even in the middle of death. She received life in a way that she never could have expected or anticipated beforehand. 
Trusting in the word of the Lord means believing that God can bring life in the middle of whatever circumstance we're in and choosing to walk and trust God wherever that is. And so from Abraham and Sarah in this passage, we learn to trust the way of God, the way he's called us to live, and we learn to trust the word of God, the promise of life to all things. But the story doesn't end there. Did you guys catch that? In verse 14, there's a brilliant cliffhanger. The story doesn't resolve very easily, which is frustrating for us, right? We like to have things neatly wrapped up, but that's not how the story ends right away. Instead, these men, who we now know to be God, ask a question because they heard Sarah laughing. They ask, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And the word wonderful there, it might be translated in your version as impossible. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Or is anything too hard for the Lord? The idea there is the true, real sense of wonder. Not like a sense of, oh, that's wonderful, that's nice. But truly something that breaks open what we would anticipate could happen, right? Something that strikes us and moves beyond our expectation or reality. These men seem to be rhetorically asking Sarah here, what are the limits that you've placed on God? What do you think is really possible with God? There's a theologian I love named Karl Barth who talks about this. He talks about how we as humans are often dictated by what we think is possible. And so we have an umbrella of thought. I've got a visual here to help uh, kind of conceive of this. We have an umbrella of possibility, right? And so we determine our reality based on what we think is already possible. It's our frame of reference that determines what reality could look like. And so if we can't see from our own line of sight something to be possible, then that thing couldn't be real, right? That thing couldn't actually show up in our lives. And that's why Sarah is laughing here, because she's only seeing what's possible to her. She's only seeing her frame of reference. She's not taking into account that God might be able to work outside of her frame of reference in a way she would not expect. And I think we often do the same thing as Sarah in our own lives. We often see what the world tells us is possible. We often are dictated and constrained by that. That becomes the umbrella through which we perceive reality. Our world constantly feeds us pictures that define and constrain what is possible for us. We're told that it's only possible to do politics by yelling at each other. On TV stations that report radically different things or at least spin them in radically different ways. We're told that it's really not possible to feed every starving person in the world. That's too big a task. We're told that the only way to resolve our conflict, the only possible way to resolve it is through violence, through war. We're told that happiness isn't possible unless you have certain products or material possessions. We're told that the only responses to our broken world are despair and cynicism. We're told that only utter barrenness is possible and that true life and freedom can't really be had in our world. And so we have to ask ourselves the same question. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Karl Barth reminds us that the possibility umbrella gets reversed because of what God has done. The possibility umbrella isn't the way that things are. Instead, what happens is that there's a reality that God is working and bringing forth in the world that ultimately puts our possibility underneath it. That God's reality is the thing that determines all things. And that our possibility is a narrow section of this bigger reality. That God is working beyond what we could perceive or conceive of in our own minds. God's reality says that life comes in the middle of death. God's reality says a barren woman is not disqualified from having a child. And so we realize here that this cliffhanger 
cliffhanger question has an answer in our lives. The answer actually comes later in scripture as well. This was a fascinating discovery that uh, I called a buddy of mine this week and it said it gave him chills. Later on in this story, in the Gospel of Luke, we're introduced to a young woman named Mary. And Mary is approached by a messenger of God, similar to how Sarah and Abraham are approached by a messenger of God here. And the messenger tells her that she's going to bear a son, that son's name is going to be Jesus, and that Jesus is going to bring life and redemption, restoration to all people and to all things. And then the messenger also tells her that another son is going to be born named John, and that son is going to point towards this reality in Jesus. They'll be the culmination of this story that started with Abraham and Sarah. But Mary has a possibility umbrella, just like we do. And so her immediate questions are, okay, I'm a virgin, so how am I going to have a child? And Elizabeth is barren, so how is she going to have a child? This sounds a little crazy. This doesn't fit in my possibility umbrella. And the messenger says that God's going to show up in both their lives and that this grand story of life is going to be fulfilled in them. And then the messenger says these words, for nothing will be impossible with God. And the word for impossible there, it's the same word in the Greek translation of Genesis 18 for wonderful. This is an answer, a direct callback to Genesis 18. The cliffhanger question, is anything too wonderful for God, is answered by the arrival of Jesus in the world. It is the culmination of this story. Redemption and restoration have arrived in the person of Jesus. It's this huge cosmic blessing that God has been working to bring about for thousands of years. And so suddenly the bomb goes off for every one of us. Is forgiveness too wonderful for God? No. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven all that we've done to harm one another. Is the healing of disease too wonderful for God? No. Because the person of Jesus gives sight to the blind and legs to the lame and ears to the deaf. Is the tearing down of dividing walls, of racism and politization and tribalism, are those things too wonderful for God? No. Because the person of Jesus Christ died for his enemies and loved the people who killed him. He broke down all those divisions. And we as the church get to embody that in our mode of living. Friends, we have an answer to this question in the person of Jesus. And so we're left with a choice. Do we continue to live in our possibility umbrella? Or do we trust in the reality of Jesus and what he's done? Do we trust in the reality umbrella of God? Because when we trust in the way of God, when we live with hospitality and generosity, we bring this new reality into our midst. And when we trust in the word of God, in Jesus himself, who's called the word of God by John, we are given peace and abundant life, now and into eternity. Every one of us, every week, enters this place being defined by what the world tells us is possible, being defined by what the world says could happen. But every Sunday in this place, we're reminded that there's a reality that transcends what the world says. There's a reality where God defines what's possible and where God breaks open all of the death in our life to bring true, abundant life. There's life and grace that transcends death and condemnation. There's a God who brings life into our midst in ways that we couldn't anticipate or expect right off the bat. And that's something to laugh about because nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Let's pray together, friends.